Now, would you turn please in your Bibles with me to God's word as recorded in Acts chapter 5 as we continue our series uh, through this wonderful book. We're going to stay in Acts under the titles A Church on the Move through until Easter. And then uh, we're going to step away from it for a little while because we worked out that if we were going to just stay in Acts until we were finished, we would be in it every Sunday until perhaps next September 2020. And we felt it might be good to bring a little bit of a break in that teaching and then return to it because there are 65 other books in the Bible that we want to also explore. So after we get to Easter, we're going to pick up the story of God in the book of Habakkuk. And we're really looking forward to what God is going to do with that. But tonight, or this morning, we continue our exploration of Acts by reading the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Even when it is a word as serious as the one that we have just read. For those of you who are guests this morning online or here in the room, please don't think that um, I go through the Bible and choose passages that are really frightening and preach them on a Sunday morning. We've been working our way through Acts and one of the great challenges and joys and blessings of exegetical preaching, going through a book text by text and verse by verse, is that you can't avoid the hard texts. And this morning is a hard text, but it's a message that will bring life and hope and freedom and security to all of our hearts if we will let it. And I pray that God blesses what I am going to say to you. If you want a title for the next three Sunday mornings, actually, this week, next week, and then two weeks after that, because we have a dedication 
of Tilly Thompson on St. Patrick's Day, and we're uh, moving um, into a slightly different passage for that, <clears throat> then it would be, um, what happens when God is on the move? Because in chapter 5 of Acts, the chapter that we've reached in our study, we see God on the move. And over those three Sundays, if you like, this will be a little bit of a mini exploration of that. Tom Wright, in his um, little um, daily Bible reading commentary for the book of Acts, Acts for Everyone, on pages 78 and 79, tells the story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher in the 19th century, perhaps one of the world's most famous preachers of that era, standing up to preach one Sunday morning and um, having a sense that God wanted him to say something. So Spurgeon stopped the service and he said, I believe that God wants to say to somebody this morning that they have been stealing from their employer and that they must stop it and deal with it. Otherwise, there will be great repercussions. Spurgeon didn't know where that had come from. He hadn't prepared it. He hadn't written it into his message. He was a man who took the Bible very seriously, yet he felt a strong impression on that Sunday morning all those years ago to say that. At the end of the service, a man came to him and said that he needed to put right exactly the thing that Spurgeon spoke into his life and that God had been challenging him about it and he had been trying to avoid it and trying to run away from it. Commenting on that episode, Tom Wright in his commentary says this, Spurgeon was left wondering or pondering the strange reality that without using, without seeking for it or without realizing it, he had been given a word of knowledge about someone that he did not know. Such things happen more often than you might think in the context of a church where God is moving powerfully through the preaching, through the teaching, and people are becoming Christians. God guards and guides and protects his people. Even here in our own church family, in the last three or four weeks, we have seen this happening. We've seen God speaking directly into people's lives and sorting out situations. There's things happened this week in our church family where God has been guarding and protecting and guiding us as a church family. It's more often present than you might think. But in Acts chapter 5, we see an example of the same thing happening in the verses that we read. A couple called Ananias and Sapphira are challenged by Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, about the fact that they have taken money, uh, they have gained some money through selling a field, and they've lied about it, and both of them die. That's the passage that we're going to explore uh, today. But actually, before I do that, I want to set it in context of the whole of Acts chapter 5. You see, as I said at the beginning of my message, Acts 5 gives us a snapshot of what was happening in the church and around the church during this time of its early days of great blessing and great growth and great expansion. In Acts 2.41, here's what we read. So those who, were, who welcomed his message, that was Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, were baptized and that day about 3,000 were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And then um, at the end of Acts 2, in verse 47, we read this, And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Then in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we read, But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. It's not clear whether that's an additional 2,000 to the 3,000 that were saved in Acts 2, and therefore the church becomes about 5,000 strong. Or this is another 5,000 added to the church's 3,000. 
which would then make it about 8,000 strong. Either way, this is more rapid growth than Dundonald Elam has ever seen. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, at the end of that chapter, we read this, and with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So here's a church which is growing. It has the favor of God on it. People are being converted. People are being drawn into living faith in Jesus. They've seen a man healed at the gate beautiful. They're seeing God moving in powerful ways. They're also seeing challenges and opposition and difficulty. And humanly speaking, they're facing uncertainty. It's very difficult to then work out how I want to say what I want to say next to you because I don't want it to sound arrogant or presumptuous about our church. But in the last eight months, almost every week, in the last eight or nine months, almost every week we have seen people coming to faith. And this last week we've seen four. The week before we saw six. God is powerfully at work in our church. Not going to be, is. A few weeks ago, we had a night of healing and we're still hearing stories of people who have received healing. A man who, um, who had leukemia and was told that there was nothing that could be done for him. Went to the doctor, had blood tests the day after we prayed for him and the leukemia had gone. A lady that's in our church and never misses. She is a loved and dearly cherished member of our church. Had had a bleed behind her eye for two years. Two years. And it wouldn't go away and they couldn't do anything about it. She received prayer, went to the hospital on the Tuesday and the bleed had gone. We're hearing emails. We get emails and messages from people around the world where God is moving and touching. Those are the bits that we like when God is on the move. But there was also in the early church opposition, critique, jealousy, fear, anxiety. There was uncertainty. There was um, religious animosity. There were uh, fights and arguments. Those things also we will have to tackle as we move forward together as a church family. And in Acts chapter 5, you begin to see the consequences of a church that is growing and what happens in it. And over the next few weeks, we're going to explore them. First of all, in the 11 verses that are in front of us today, we see a church where God exposes sin. Where he reveals women and men's hearts. Where he uncovers hidden agendas. Where he takes away the mask that people might use in their language and their behavior to make it look as if they're doing everything right and fitting in. And he exposes agendas that are hidden. It's a serious thing. In verses 12 through to 16 that we will look at in um, just a, a few weeks, uh, we see um, signs and wonders and growth. We see miracles. We see signs and wonders. And we see the church continuing to grow. And in verses 17 to 42 that we will explore on the 24th of March, you see opposition. When a church is moving, when a church is growing, you see all of those things. You see sin exposed, agendas revealed, hidden language, hidden messages, hidden attempts to control and manipulate become exposed by the Holy Spirit and they have to be dealt with. You see growth and miracles and signs and God intervening miraculously and powerfully and you see opposition, particularly from religious people, particularly from those who want to box God in and say, he's not allowed to do that because I don't like it. We're going to explore what that looks like over the next few weeks because 
And I say this with humility. If you ever saw my notes, I, I, I write quite a lot of notes. And I've written here, make sure you don't sound pompous. <laughs> God is on the move here in Dundonald Elam Church. And we are seeing him do remarkable things. Things that I have not seen in 30 odd years of ministry. And we must therefore be humble and attentive to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And we must be careful to give him all the glory and all the honor for what he is doing in our church family. So to Acts 5, 1 to 11. Here's the story in outline or in brief. Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife, conspire together, we know from verse one, to sell a field and to give some of the money to God through the community of the early church for the support of local believers. You see that at the end of Acts 4, that that's beginning to happen right across the church. They pretend that they're giving all of the proceeds. If you read verse 3 of chapter 5 and verse 8 of chapter 5, that's clear. So they pretend that they're giving all of the proceeds from the sale of the field to the, to the Lord through the church, but actually they've kept some. And that's what the sin is. They've lied about what they're doing. The sin was not that they kept some of the money. The sin was that they said they were going to give it all and they didn't. Peter, moving with a word of knowledge or something similar, asks first Ananias and then Sapphira what they're doing about the money from the field and whether they've given it all. And both lie, and as a result, both die. You read of Ananias' death in verse 5, and you read of Sapphira's death in verse 10. And in verse 6 and verse 11, you read what the consequence was of this incident in the church and in Jerusalem. Great fear seized them all. Now, I want you to note some things about this incident before we go any further. And these are kind of theological things, but they're important things because of the age in which we live and the way in which many Christians talk about what Jesus now does. This is a post-resurrection and a post-Pentecost event. And it therefore challenges the notion that God only moves in ways that makes us happy. That when God is moving amongst his people, it's always, it's always, always a, a very positive, beautiful, joyful, wonderful thing that you will enjoy. That's not true of the New Testament. And it's not true of the early church. Here we see in an age of grace, and I believe the Old Testament was an age of grace as well, but don't divert me into a message about dispensationalism, please. It'll not help. In this season of the church, post-resurrection, post the giving of the Holy Spirit, in the age of miracles, and all that God was doing, he moves in power and two people drop dead because they've lied to him. Because they've misled the church, because they've misled the leadership of the church, because they've misled the body of Christ, but more importantly than any of those things, and it's clear from the text, that's not the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is that they lied to God. They thought they could get away with lying to God. Peter says on more than one occasion, you have not lied to us, but to the Holy Spirit. 
There are profound lessons for Dundon Leelam and for the Church of Jesus Christ in Northern Ireland and in the United Kingdom, in the Republic of Ireland and across Europe today. We speak of wanting to see God move. We speak of wanting miracles. We speak of wanting to stand up for the truth in our society. We say we need to get back to the days of the early church. We want to see converts. We want to see men and women converted every week. And thank God we are seeing that. We want to serve the poor. We want to share life together. We want to shine as beacons around the world. That's our heart's desire. Bring us back to the church of Acts. There are profound challenges in this that we do not like in this story. We're also then saying, God, please expose sin. Please reveal that sin affects the whole body. Please show us that our hearts are known to you and that you can speak to us in profoundly challenging and personal ways. Please, will you help us realize that you take the life of our community seriously and our witness to the world and that sometimes you may intervene in ways that are deeply challenging to us. Except many of us don't want that bit of the book of Acts. We want the bit that is fun, not the bit that could cut right into our own hearts and bring about a community of truth and grace. Brothers and sisters, you can't have one without the other. And I ask you this morning, and I am very conscious of this here as the leader of our church family. I'm very conscious that when I preach a message like this morning, it can feel a little bit like periodic moments in Jesus's ministry where he speaks of the cross and he speaks of suffering and he speaks of shame and rejection and being made to feel small. And immediately after in the verses, what we read in scripture is many of them departed from him at that point. We've seen remarkable growth here in Dundonald over the last eight or nine months. And hear me, I don't want any of you to leave. But I'm willing to let you go if you're staying only for the wrong reasons. Because I am not remotely interested, and I want you to hear me and remember that I have said this. I'm not remotely interested in just having backsides on seats. God has called me to lead our church, not just into numeric growth, into spiritual depth. Into being a community that continues to love each other, is open to the Holy Spirit, is willing to walk together, takes the Bible seriously, and takes sin seriously, and holiness seriously. This is not an entertainment spot. This is a moment when we gather together before Almighty God, and therefore the unity of our church matters. The holiness of our church matters. The direction of our church matters. The depth of our church matters. The relationship in this, relationships in our church matter. And we must take all of that seriously. You can tell sometimes when people are listening intently. It gets quieter and quieter. Brothers and sisters, I'm glad that that's the case. Because I think we should always read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 quietly. Every one of us, me included. We should take seriously what God says here and what happens. Because there is no such a thing as cheap grace. The early church quickly became aware of that. You see, in their heads and in their hearts, I want to try and help you understand a little bit of what's happening here. They didn't realize it yet, but they were beginning to realize something. They were beginning to realize that God had anointed them in such a way. And you hear this in uh, 
1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6 and in Ephesians. As the early church reflects on what God is doing in these early days, they come to believe something extremely important that you will not connect with this story. And that is that they are the new temple of the living God. That their lives are temples and that when they gather together, they are a temple. I've said this before here in different contexts, but it's important to note it here. There are three Greek words for temple in the New Testament. One means a building, one means a precinct, and one means the very center, the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Every time Paul in the New Testament describes the early church as a temple or early believers as temples, he uses the word for Holy of Holies. Every believer on planet earth who is blood-bought is a temple to the holy God that we serve. You are a place where heaven and earth meet. There's nowhere holier in eternity than the center of your life. Now, not in the future, now. Now that's masked and hidden and concealed by sinfulness and brokenness and wrong decisions. But the reality is, in terms of salvation, God has made every believer a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And every local church gathered in his name with blood-bought believers, when we gather together, we too are a temple. A place where heaven and earth meet, where anything is possible. That's why what we see happening here is happening. You see, if you read back into the Old Testament, the wonderful story of the people of God, into 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 to 9, you will read the story of the uh, contamination of the Ark of the Covenant. And you'll see that God takes it so seriously that the people that touch it, the Ark of the Covenant was a, was a, a structure that was carried in which was placed, and uh, depending on um, on which part of the Old Testament history you're at, either the, um, the stones upon which Moses wrote, or God wrote the Ten Commandments, um, or that plus manna and Aaron's staff, depending on which part of the story you are in in the Old Testament. It contains either one of those things or all three of those things. But it was a, a significant symbol on earth of God's holiness and presence. So significant that God said, if anybody touches this, other than those that I have ordained to touch it, there will be significant consequences. Now we read it and we don't really understand it. Do you know why that is, brothers and sisters? Because we take sin far less seriously than God does. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 to 9, as the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back to Jerusalem, it, it's on a cart and it, and it shakes and one of the people that's close to it reaches out and touches it. And there are dire consequences for the two people that do that. Because it's a symbol of God's holiness and God's presence. If you read Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron, the first priest's two sons, um, behave irrespect, disrespectfully toward the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. There are dire consequences. In Joshua chapter 7, as the early uh, Hebrew people are entering the promised land and they're taking city by city, they take one of the cities and they're told that the, the plunder, the silver and the gold and the things that are in the city have to be set apart for the Lord's use in, the te in, in his holy tent. There wasn't a temple at that point, in his holy tent. And none of it is to be kept. 
And as they leave uh, Jericho and Ai, um, there is, it becomes clear that something's wrong. And nobody will say what is wrong. So God says to Joshua, call all the people together. And then he says, out of all of those people, take one tribe. And out of that one tribe, take one family. And out of that one family, take one man and ask him why he has stolen from me. His name is Achan. He stole a cup and he hid it in grain and he thought nobody would realize. And he is destroyed as a result because he's undermining the holiness of God. He's undermining this message that where God is present, holiness needs to be taken seriously. And at the end of the um, reign of King Uzziah, uh, in the middle of the reign of King Uzziah, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, he also takes less than seriously the presence of God. And as a result, he is um, afflicted with leprosy. And in the end, he spends the rest of his life in a separate house as the king. Why? Because he assumed that he could take God's presence flippantly. He assumed that he could treat, treat sin lightly. He assumed he could do whatever he wanted, and he can't. That's the story that's being picked up here. It is that the new people, the, new, the church, the early church in Acts chapter 5, have become this expression of God's presence and power. And when you lie to God in that community, there are huge consequences from it. Now, thankfully, and I really genuinely mean thankfully, there doesn't seem to be another event like this in the rest of the New Testament. There are two that could be similar. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, and the other is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. But I personally don't think they have anything like the magnitude of what's happening here. But here in this early church, alongside the first miracles, alongside the giving of the Spirit, alongside speaking in tongues, alongside signs and wonders, alongside sharing life, alongside preaching the gospel for the first time, seeing people saved, alongside all those firsts, here's another first that we very rarely preach on. And that first is God will deal with lying and sin. The community of grace is not a community where what you've done or who you are doesn't matter. It's a community where God takes it seriously. And the only way to deal with it is through repentance and through honesty and humility and openness to the Holy Spirit. I thank God that by and large, we live in the reality that God sees and knows us and calls us into his story and is more gracious to us than we deserve. But don't ever think that that's because he doesn't see I'm going to say something to you which sounds harsh but actually is liberating. Nobody gets away with sin in the end. Nobody. Because everybody will one day stand before Almighty God and give an account for their choices and their decisions. Now you can get away with it with me. You can get away with it with our church. You can get away with it with our denomination. You can get away with it. But in the end, nobody gets away with it forever because God will purify his people. I guess what I want to ask you this morning, and it's not with a heavy heart, it's with a hopeful heart, is make sure you're walking right with God, sister. Make sure you're keeping a short account with God, brother. Don't think that your secret life doesn't matter. It really matters. Here's one of the reasons why. 
In the uh, Spanish Civil War, General Emilio Mola broadcast uh, a radio message just before the days when Madrid was liberated in the 1930s. And he had developed as his military campaign four columns of attack. And one of the questions that he was asked was, which of those columns will be most influential in the taking of the city of Madrid and in the winning of the Civil War? He used a phrase that has become part of English uh, language now all the time. He said, none. I have a fifth column. And that fifth column is all of those people who are sympathetic to the Spanish nationalist cause who are living in Madrid. That nobody else knows where they are, but I know where they are. And when I need to mobilize them, I can mobilize them and they will become my fifth column. It's now talked about as in spy books and military conflicts and wars. Who is the fifth column? The early church from Acts chapter 3 through to Acts chapter 7 faced four columns of attack from Satan. Obvious and clear ones. The first was persecution. The second was division. In Acts chapter 6, you'll read them arguing over whether the people that have a Hebrew background or the Greek background are getting looked after properly. It's a legitimate complaint, by the way, in Acts chapter 6. It's different to what's happening here. But they divide over legitimate concerns. The third column is distraction. Forget what you're really here for and start doing secondary stuff. Start existing for the sake of other stuff. The fourth was scattering. After the attack of um, the authorities on Stephen and his martyrdom, the church scatters. Satan uses those four columns, persecution, division, distraction, and scattering as an attempt to destroy the early church. None of them work. But he has a fifth column. And the fifth column is hidden agendas and lies in the church. That's what you see here in Acts chapter 5. And it's why God takes it so seriously. Hidden agendas, lies, sin, deceit, trying to maneuver yourself into a place of popularity, maneuvering yourself into a place of position, maneuvering yourself into a place where everybody else thinks that you are more than you are. Isn't that what Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira were doing here? They were lying about money, but they were doing more than that. Why were they lying about the money? Were they lying about the money so that everybody thought they were rich? Maybe. Were they lying about the money so that everybody thought that they were more generous than they were? Probably. Why did they need that? Somehow, what they needed was the church to believe that they, were, they had a different agenda to the one that they actually had. That's what's going on here. That's what this fifth column is. And that will always destroy a church. Doesn't matter whether it's a denomination or a local congregation. Doesn't matter what the name is around it. And it will also always destroy a family. Hidden agendas, trying to manipulate and control people with your wealth, trying to make people think that you're better than you are or more generous than you are, having any kind of hidden agenda will destroy you and will destroy the church that you are part of. That's the lesson of Acts chapter 5. Now the good news is, God won't let that happen. He will expose it. My experience 
over the years is this Satan always oversteps his mark. And when he does, the believers, the body of Christ can see it and we see God doing something. He tried to destroy the church through persecution, but persecution made the church stronger. He tried to destroy the church through division. So they set up deacons. The first deacons were men who were able to serve at table and visit the sick and care for the widow. The word deacon is a word that means a servant. As a result of his attempt to divide the church because of its growth, it was strengthened because of its growth. And God blessed and the work continued to grow by distraction, by trying to pull them off their main thing, by trying to turn them into a Jewish sect. God used it instead to remind them that they were about Jesus and they were about grace and they were about the cross and they were about resurrection and they were about community and the church grew. And here, as he tries this um, fifth uh, scattering, when he tries to get them to to go after Stephen's uh, death and they all run, Satan thinks that will destroy them. But what happened was they carried the seed of hope with them. They went to different places. And as far as we know, the church reached right across Asia and right into Europe because of that scattering. Satan oversteps his mark and God intervenes. And here, with fifth column hidden agendas in sin, God intervenes because Satan has overstepped his mark and the church is strengthened and the fear of the Lord rests on the community and many people are impacted by it. Don't get excited about that. <laughs> so what are the issues that I want to leave with you from this passage? How does this translate into 2019 in the next few years as we walk forward together as a church here's the first one I have five the issue here is is not that Ananias and Sapphira didn't give enough I hope you understand that the issue is that they lied about their giving Nobody told them to decide what they were going to give. Nobody told them that they, that they had to give everything. Nobody said that to them. They said that. And they wanted everybody to believe that. So the issue here of sin that is specifically being used, that is specifically being exposed, has two sides, lying and deception. Because lying and deception are about manipulation and control. But I would want to suggest something to you slightly deeper than that to maybe help you. This is hard to explain. In Acts chapter 2, we see the church being given for the first time in the New Testament the gift of tongues. Speaking in languages that they have never learned. Now, there's much that I could say about that. But what I want to say about this for the moment is this. When one speaks in tongues in a way that is fitting with Scripture... One is speaking out the mind, purposes, and plans of God, either in prayer or praise or in other ways, depending on how you interpret what that looks like. But when you speak in tongues, the spirit in you is prompting words to come out of you under your control that you are using to bring glory and honor to Jesus' name and to direct people to to speak out the purposes of God. And in a sense, what I'm trying to say to you for the moment is, there's a, huge, there's, a, there's a profoundly important alignment between God and heaven and you in the way you use words in that moment. And that Ananias and Sapphira did the opposite. Their lying is the opposite of speaking in accordance with God. Their deception is the opposite of that gift because what they're trying to do is manipulate and control the congregation by pretending to be God. 
They're telling the bit of the story they want. They're using words that they want, not only to mislead, but to mislead in the name of God. That is a serious thing. You see it sometimes when the gifts of the Spirit are used badly. There's a season that a church is going through. There's a a chapter that they're experiencing. And suddenly every interpretation and every prophetic word sounds like it's having a hammer at those that are finding it difficult. That's not a gift of the Spirit. That's the opposite. And my job as a pastor is to seek discernment in this as I guide and guard you. As we move in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as we allow God to move amongst us, There is this fundamental thing that has to sit underneath everything else that we are and that we do. And I want you to get it because I don't want you to get offended at me in the next 5, 10, 20 or 30 years. You can say to me until you are blue in the face, God told me to say this. I will only agree with that if I have sought God too and have that conviction. You can't use the language, the Lord told me and not expect it to be questioned. You are operating outside of the parameters of the New Testament. So when you bring a word, when you come and say to me, Pastor, I think God might be asking me to do that. Or no, Pastor, God is asking me to say this. I will always hear you saying, I think God is asking me to say this. I will never ask your permission to test what you say against the Scriptures. And if what you say is in direct contradiction to the scriptures, then you are wrong. And it's my job to help you grow in the prophetic gifts of the spirit, to help you grow in all that God wants to do with you, but not at the expense of the integrity and the safety of this community. What you see happening here is sin and lying and deceit that leads to manipulation and control. And I have to. Whether you like me or not, my job is to protect this flock as much as possible from lying, deceit, manipulation, and control. Now, I'm going to say something to you that's going to sound really old-fashioned, and you're all going to go away thinking completely the wrong thing about me, but I don't really care. I'll still enjoy my Sunday roast when I go home to see Debbie. When I first came to Dundonald, um, several people said to me, "Uh, what do we call you? The, the age-old question. And my first response was, I don't care. If Paul was good enough for Paul, then Malcolm is good enough for Malcolm. But if you're asking what my preference is, and this is where I'm going to sound old-fashioned, but I want you to understand why it is as it is. My preference would be that you call me pastor. Do you know why? It's not because I think I'm better than you. It's not because I think I sit above you. It's not because I think I'm more important than you. It's not because I think that I have a better anointing or a better job than you. It's because there will come a day when I will have to say something to you that is extremely hard for you to hear from me if you just think that I'm your friend. I am your friend. (laughs) I do love you. but I'm your pastor. And there'll be things that you will ask me and I will, say, I will have to say to you, the word of God says you can't do that. There will be moments of conflict in our relationship because when I became a Christian, I gave my life to Jesus. 
When I was ordained as a pastor, and I know this is, you think this is not going off track here. This is directly rooted into this. When I became a pastor, I promised Jesus that I would serve his church wherever he wanted me to. And that I would tell them the truth. And that I would lead them according to the scriptures. When I was in my 20s and I knelt down and said, for the rest of my life, I will live under the authority of this word and I will seek to do what it tells me to. And when I don't understand it, it is right and I am wrong. I made a promise and I'm not going to break that for you. So that means that there are times when I will need to say to this whole church, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And you can loathe me for it if you like, but I love Jesus more than I love you. And I honor his word more than I honor your opinion. So it's my job always to sit under the authority of scripture. Now that doesn't mean that I'm always right. I will lose arguments all the time. But if you sat in our session, you would realize that the people that are on our session are not afraid to question me. They're not afraid to say, why are we doing this? And we've made decisions where they've been right and I've been wrong. That's healthy leadership, folks. Healthy leadership allows healthy discussion, allows healthy debate, allows disagreement, and in the end makes the decision to work together because nobody should be leading a church who leads it on their own. And I think that's a word for somebody here this morning. If you're part of a church family where one man determines everything that happens and everything that goes on online or here, then there's a danger in that leadership because it needs to be accountable to God. It needs to be accountable to his word. It can't go off on its own. So the first lesson for us as a church family is that we will and must always deal with the issue of sin. We must always deal with the issue of hidden agendas and deception and manipulation and control. And as a pastor, I would say to you, please do not try to manipulate me because God will expose it. If you're trying to angle your way into a particular ministry or into a particular role and you're not willing to be patient, you're not willing to wait, God will expose that. And my job is to make sure that the men and women that lead in our church are ready for what God wants them to do because I am looking down the track and I have a sense, I'm not sharing it with you, I have a sense before the Holy Spirit of what he wants to do in our church and it is far bigger than any of us realize. And I have a responsibility to listen to the Lord and to guard. So in the end, I will be careful about things like that. And I make no apology for it because our flock needs protected. And God has asked me, at least in part, to play some level of participation with him in that. Secondly, there's an issue here to learn about integrity. Why didn't Ananias and Sapphira just tell the truth? Why didn't they just say, you can have part of the money from the field, but we're keeping the rest because we want to go on a holiday. Or we're putting an extension on the back of the house. Or the roof's leaking, so we're going to take a straw off because there's a hole in it. Why didn't they just act with integrity? Do you know what's far more important in a community of faith than gifts or charisma? Character. Character. And the early church had character. It was flawed and broken, but it had character, trustworthiness, honesty, integrity, openness, faithfulness, loyalty. 
The gifts of the Spirit, love, and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, gentleness, temperance, self-control, meekness. Let's not become a church which is so caught up with the gifts of the Spirit that we miss the fruit of the Spirit. And please don't create a dichotomy and say to me, well, Malcolm, we either have to have one or the other. No, we don't. We will have both. There's an issue of integrity here. I'm asking you, how is your integrity? At work? At home? Husbands, are you telling the truth to your wives? Are you hiding something from them? Wives, are you hiding something from your husbands? Kids, are you hiding something from your parents? Parents, are you hiding something from your kids? Leaders here and Donald, I'm not Jesus, I'm fallible. Are you hiding something from me? Are you hoping that it doesn't get exposed? God knows your heart. I'm not frightened by that. I'm comforted by that. Because if you want Jesus' way to be done, you have nothing to be worried about. You have nothing to fear when Jesus is in control. Amen? Thirdly, this is hard. The issue of how God deals with sin in the church and how we deal with it is highlighted here. Because too often we are too lenient. We say it doesn't matter. This ties into my fourth observation. And it's going to sound like a selfish one. Your behavior impacts me. Your priorities, your life, because we are part of the same church, your behavior has a direct impact on me. And I don't want your sin to drag me away from my Savior. And I don't want my sin to drag you away from your Savior. There is a mutual responsibility in a community of faith around behavior and sin. And in the New Testament, it is much clearer than it is in our churches today. So be careful. I'm not out to get you with some kind of moral gun. I'm not looking down some kind of ethical telescope saying, well, they're not living the way I want them to. But I am saying, if we are in this, then we need to be in it together. And that together is not just about attendance. It's not just about coming to church. It's about giving. It's about financial commitment. It's about honesty. It's about integrity. It's about mutual submission. It's about a community that is genuinely real. Do you know all my life, I've longed to be part of a community where the community is real as a church, where you tell the truth and you love each other and you preach the gospel and you stand with one another and you hold each other up and you help each other. There's nothing more beautiful, don't you think? I wonder how many of us have longed to be part of a church which is A church (laughs) where people really love each other, where they really care, where they really tell the truth, where you know that your pastor isn't out to kind of demolish you or destroy you, where you know that they're going to try and hold up your arms, where you get a chance to prosper. Imagine a church where teachers were the teachers. (laughs) Imagine a church where the preachers were the ones that preached. And the worship leaders, the people gifted in worship were the ones that led worship. Imagine a church where all the leadership were gifted with the gift of leadership. Wouldn't that be interesting? 
And in the end, it comes back to the simplicity of the design that God has for his church is the best one. And we are a community that deals with one another. Here's the thing. My behavior impacts you. Your behavior impacts me. Your manipulation impacts me. My manipulation impacts you. My prayerfulness impacts you. Your prayerfulness impacts me because we're part of the same body. So please, 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 not out of fear, but out of urging, live right. Live right with God. Live right with each other. You see, I think there's a problem here that I don't have time to say very much on other than this. Christians in Northern Ireland, Christians in Europe, we are good at pointing out the sin of society. We're not good at pointing out our own sin. So we're quick to say, they're wrong and they're wrong and they're wrong and they're wrong and they're wrong. We're not so quick at saying, we need to get some stuff sorted out ourselves. And as a result, we end up being known as the people that stand against a whole load of stuff rather than people that stand for something. Now, this might concern you. I hope it doesn't. I've been praying for some weeks because I believe we're in an extraordinary season that in the midst of God moving in saving power and healing power and miraculous power, in the midst of bringing people to salvation through our services and Alpha and the ministry of our 412 group and everything else that's going on, new stuff happening with young adults and with 25 plus and people being released into ministry left, right and center. I've never, I've never been more excited to be part of a church than I am at the minute. In the midst of all of that, I am saying, God, protect your people, guard us from sin and expose wrong agendas and keep us close to you. And in the end... Here's the last point. God will protect his church because it's his, not mine. Do you know Acts chapter five, verse 11, which says, and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. It's the first time in the book of Acts that Paul, or that Luke uses the word ecclesia. There's a theological significance in that. To be part of a community of faith is to be part of a community where you're mutually accountable. A church brings with it obligations to one another. To stand with one another, to weep with one another. If you refuse those obligations, then you're counting yourself out of what God wants to do. What binds us together as a church here in Dundonald Elam is um, our shared story. I've only got a little bit of it, but I don't, it's a bit, you see, when you come to share the story of a church and you've been there nine months, I share 50 years of story with this church, not nine months. I become a participant in this church's 50 year story. I don't get to pick and choose the bit that I'm sharing. We share life together. What are the symbols that hold you and I together? Conversion, of course. A belief in the Bible, of course. Our core convictions, our statement of faith, which is what we're going to be preaching about on, and teaching on Wednesday. But there are two other things that are very physical, very, very 
obvious that tie us together. And they are beautiful things. The first is baptism. We all made the same promise. Whatever church you were part of, if you love Jesus and you were baptized, when you were baptized, you said, you're the center of my life now. If you've been baptized, you share that promise with me. We're in this together. The second is this. And here in our church family, every week, we take bread and we take wine, well, non-alcoholic grape juice, to remind us of the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And there are good reasons that we take non-alcoholic grape juice. I wasn't being facetious. And we drink this cup to remind us that what ties us together is Jesus' blood. Now, if we take this seriously, and I know you do, because I, I love you, then every seven days, God gives you a chance to get right with each other. Every seven days, God gives Malcolm Duncan a chance to get right with him, with my community of faith. I can sit and privately, without making a big song and dance of it, say, Lord, I'm sorry I let you down this week. And I come and I take fresh bread and fresh juice on the first day of the week because there's fresh grace with you. And I remind myself as I eat and drink that all of my sins have been dealt with and all of my shame has been carried away. And I am restored to you, ready for the rest of this week. That's wonderful, isn't it? Every week, every week. And there are times the only thing you can do is that. Because you open your mouth in faith, believing that you're going to be fed. And as you eat bread, God meets you. And as you drink juice, God meets you. But the second part of that is every seven days, we get a chance to make sure we're right with each other. I've not had a single argument with Davy, Pip, Tyler, or the leadership team. Not one. We haven't had a single big falling out. It must happen at some point, right? Because they're working with me. I mean, I am, can you imagine working with me? What a disaster for them. But if there was a significant disagreement, and there may well be, this table puts, gets us the chance to put it right. If I go into a week where I have an, a major argument with one of you or one of my family, who are all Christians, in my head I think I can't let this last longer than Sunday because I can't serve communion. I will not take bread and wine and know that I'm willfully walking out of step with God's spirit. So God has given us a gift that every time we gather on a Sunday morning, we can say, are we all right, Glynis? Now, I don't walk up to Glynis and say, good morning, Glynis, are we all right? Can you imagine me doing that with 400 people every week? Can we take communion? Are we all right? Are we all right? Are we all right? Are we all right? That's not what I mean. But we have the chance to be a, a genuine community of mutual accountability and trust. What could be avoided if we took that seriously? What heartbreak and pain could be avoided if we took that seriously. And here's my last word to you as a word of encouragement. Take this bread and take this cup. Eat and drink, remembering that all of your brokenness has been dealt with by Jesus. That our divisions are dealt with by Christ. 
If there's somebody from whom you are divided and you have done everything that you can in order to be resolved with them, leave it with Jesus. Stop beating yourself up over things that you can't change. Don't run away from grace. Run to it. If you've let him down this week, run to grace. Tell him. Don't hide it. Don't pretend that he can't see. That's like Ananias and Sapphira. If you've had wrong agendas, tell him. If you've had a wrong motive, tell him. If you're sitting today thinking, I need to get right with God, get right with him. Because he's here by the power of his Holy Spirit to renew and to revive. And if you want to be part of a church that is trying to get this right, but knows it will fail, welcome Because we are not perfect, but we are committed to being this church that loves Jesus and walks humbly with one another and before him. So come to this table, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because you love the Lord a lot, but because you love him a little and you desire to love him more. Come not because you have all the answers. Come because he is the answer. Come in your weakness and be made strong in your frailty and receive the gift of faith and humility and be strengthened. Come honestly and let God, who is rich in mercy, wipe away all the sorrow and all the regret and all the things you wish you could say over again and let him come in grace and lift your head because he is here by the power of his spirit. Let's pray together and receive bread and wine.